In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, God willing, today we're going to continue where we left off. Um, we finished um, a little over half, I believe, of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, um, and then we'll continue into chapter 11. So I'm just going to read again from the beginning of Second Corinthians, just so we can get the background, um, and then continue um, from where we left off. So saying in, in chapter 10, um, St. Paul was speaking um, kind of in defense of himself against the false teachers, and the false teachers were um, envious of St. Paul, and they were teaching against St. Paul, and they were trying to incite the people against St. Paul. So he is defending himself a lot, and, and as we said before, his defense was not because of he was like personally offended and was trying to protect his reputation, but his defense was so that they would believe that he is truly an apostle chosen by God, and so they would hear his words of salvation for their own sake. So everything is for the sake of the people. So he said, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. This is all we covered this last time. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience with your obedient, when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. We fin what, chat what was the last verse that we covered? Six. So this is the first new verse. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so here he's saying what? He's saying, are, are you looking only at the outward appearances? Right, So he refers here to the false teachers who consider themselves to be Christ's and who are preaching as though they are Christ's because they are going to the people and they're saying, we are the ones who are the teachers come from God who are teaching you the truth, right? And they are teaching the people something. So they are claiming that they are from Christ. So he is saying, are you only looking at the outward appearance? Why? Because these speakers were eloquent and they were convincing and maybe they told the people what they wanted to hear. So from the outward appearance, they appear to be genuine, okay? But St. Paul, even though some people said about him that he was kind of unimpressive in person, that maybe he didn't have a tall stature or maybe he was like, you know, didn't, didn't appear to be very like foreboding or intimidating. <coughs> they said about him that he is, you know, he's an unimpressive to us. He doesn't, his, his epistles, when he writes the epistles, they sound very um, uh, powerful and they, they sound very bold, but in person, as, as, a, as a person in, 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 you know, in, in person, he's, he's not any of those things. So here, um, St. Paul is warning uh, against looking at the outer appearances. And this issue of the outer appearances is a big issue for us today in our society, right? How many things are judged by their outward appearances? Can you think of some things that are just like, we, we judge based on outward appearances all the time, and it's a big problem. People, like, in what way? If they what? Their lifestyle, okay, like, and, in, in like, what, what kind of lifestyle do you mean? 
So somebody looks attractive, has nice things, lives in a nice place, has a nice house, or someone who is a celebrity, someone who, you know, people look up to them because from the outward appearance, it appears like they have made it, like, right? Like the things that people aspire to, the things that people admire, oh, those people, they are like the pinnacle. They are the, the, the example that if we were to follow them, right, everything would be um, like, like that's what everybody wants to be. I remember actually a friend of mine, his daughter has cancer. And when she was younger, um, she, uh, she, she, she was, a, have you heard of the Make-A-Wish Foundation? So Make-A-Wish Foundation is like uh, whenever um, you have a child like who has cancer, they like want to make them feel better. So they grant them like a wish and they give them options of like, what's the wish that they want. And so at the time, uh, you know, the show Hannah Montana, it was a show, I guess, on the Disney Channel. And so one of the options for this girl was for her to meet, um, I guess it was Miley Cyrus, she's the one. Yeah, she's very different now than she was then. Um, so uh, so, so that, that was one of the things. And so this girl, like in her mind, to meet Hannah Montana, like that's like a, an amazing experience, right? And so that's what she wanted. And then the, the organizers of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, they went and told my friend, her dad, like, just so you're aware, you know, the people, these actors and these actresses that when who they are in real life and the amount of attention they're going to give you and all those things is not anything like what you're going to see on TV. Right. So it's like almost like he was giving her a warning. He's saying, you think that when you meet this person, that is going to be a great honor and you're going to enjoy it so much. But in practice, they might only spend a couple of minutes with you and that's it. You know, they might not be what you imagine them to be. So this idea of judging by outward appearance, like it changes, it changes like our whole goal, right? Like when we look at the outward appearances of some people and we orient our whole life to, to make our goal to be like them. I want to be like this person without us even understanding or realizing who is this person. You know, what we see is from the outside, not from the inside. St. John Chrysostom, he says, what does looking at things according to outward appearances means? It is when someone is rich, puffed up, surrounded by a multitude of flatterers, claims great things or vainglory for himself, or if he hypocritically considers himself virtuous for no true basis, right? It is just, an imp all I care about is, the, is my reputation in front of other people. All I care about is to appear a certain way. And this is actually how the Antichrist is going to fool the world right? Even the believers, because he's going to come appearing as though he is righteous. He's going to come appearing as though he is Christ himself, and people will believe him, believing that he is Christ. But if you were to look at the reality, if you look at really what he is from the inside, right, you'll see that the reality is very different. So these false teachers, they were puffed up with pride, and all they cared about was having followers, and all they care about was like, convincing people to honor and respect them and to follow them, and that they maybe even were deceived in themselves, believing that they themselves were of Christ, that they themselves were doing the right thing. And this is when the idea of the outward appearances becomes very dangerous, because it's one thing to fool other people, but it's another thing to fool ourselves, right? Because I can fool somebody else by thinking through how I'm going to appear, what I'm going to say at the right time, and so on. But to fool myself means that I buy into the lie and I don't even realize who I am anymore. And the, the reason that's dangerous 
is because once I myself am convinced of my own outward appearance, my, all, my own false outward appearance, now it closes off any path of repentance. Because I can only repent as, as long as I'm aware of what I'm doing. If I, if I realize that I care about outward appearances, if I realize that I care about flattery, if I realize that I'm kind of two-faced or have the, I'm, I'm divided and I act and speak one way here and here, then at least, even if I struggle with this, at least I can realize it. And then when I go, I can confess, I can repent of the sin and I can struggle to improve, okay? But if I myself have bought into the appearance, and this is the case for people who are very successful, the people who are very um, maybe uh, in the public eye, the people that are given a lot of honor, the people that, you know, you, you go to them always and you're thanking them and you're, and you're like, you know, happy to see them all the time. People who are in certain positions where kind of they receive this kind of praise and honor all the time, it is those people who are more likely to, um, to believe the hype, right? To begin to believe without even realizing it, all the things that are being said about them. So whenever we are in a position where people are praising us, this is why always the church is like always very, tells us to be very careful whenever we are being praised, right? Because the moment that I'm being praised, I have to remind myself, who am I? Uh, maybe I am not at all the person who they think I am. Not because I'm trying to hide myself, but, you know, they don't know my secret life. They don't know my inner life. They don't know my thoughts. They don't know my sins. They don't know the things that I am actually struggling with. So when they come and shower me with praise, it's like, you're praising a different person. You don't know who I am to be praising me, you know? I remember a story from the movie about um, Abuna Justus el Antoni, Saint Justice of the Monastery of Saint Anthony. And in his movie, he's a very righteous and holy man. And people, he has a reputation. Everybody comes from all over to come and visit with him and so on. And he has many virtues. And one thing about him is this woman came and she started praising him, praising him, praising him, you know, about everything that he was. And in, the, and in this movie, it like had his own voice kind of as though he is thinking to himself and he's saying, this woman, if she really knew me, would she be praising me like this? You know, it, 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 would she really be saying all these things about me if she really knew who I really was? So we have to always be careful about these outward appearances that we don't go after them. We don't seek them out. We don't care so much about our reputation in front of other people, but we care more about what we are doing in front of God. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed lest I seem to terrify you by letters. Okay. So even though, so here St. Paul is saying what? I have been given authority, right? I have been given authority by God as an apostle, right? The apostles were the highest rank. They are the highest rank in the church, higher than any other rank. Okay. No one is, can tell an apostle what to do. Okay. He is the highest rank. So he's saying, even though by position, okay, I am of high rank and I have authority given to me by God, right? But what is the reason that God gave me this authority? You know, God gave me the authority to use it wisely. He gave me the authority for your edification and not for your destruction. So even if God gives somebody authority and power, it doesn't mean that we should be always using that authority and power all the time. You know, like if a parent who has authority over their kids, if the only means by which the parent tries to guide and teach their kid is through exercising their authority and power, 
like everything is discipline and everything is consequence and everything is punishment and everything is forcing and everything like, yes, the parent has the authority to do those things. But it doesn't mean that that should be the primary means by which a parent raises their children, right? So any of us who has authority, right, we have to be careful and wise in the way that we use that authority. It reminds me of the story in the Gospels where um, there, was a, there was a region that rejected Christ. They didn't want Christ and, the, and his apostles to enter. And so the apostles, James and John, they went to the Lord and they said, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them? Why? Because they, they rejected us. Because they didn't want us to go into the region. And the Lord looked at them and he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. You know, like for the son of man did not come to destroy, but to save, right? Saying, yes, maybe the apostles had the authority to where they could pray and that God would send down fire from heaven to destroy a region, right? Maybe God had given them that authority. But just because I have that, does that mean that everywhere I go, whenever people reject me, I'm going to call down fire from heaven to destroy people? The Lord himself, when he was on the cross, he could have, you know, commanded all of heaven to come and save him and to come and to destroy his enemies, right? But he chose not to do this. He chose instead to be restrained for the sake of what? The love, for the sake of the edification, for the sake of what was good for those people. He allowed himself to suffer for their sake. And certainly anyone who has authority and has a position he does have the, the ability to, to treat harshly, right, someone else. But if his goal or her goal is edification, if her goal or his goal is to love one another, to love those people, then he accepts suffering to himself for the sake of the patience and long-suffering of enduring the weaknesses of those people, not to be quick to judge and attack them. Again, back to the parent, right? Like the parent, how, how, how patient have that parents have to be in order to 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 rear their children in order to raise them in order to teach them good principles and they fall and make mistakes again and again and again and the parents have to accept this and not be quick to retaliate not be quick to anger right in the church as well right or in any in any situation where you have someone who is teaching someone else something we have to be patient right and especially when we are disciplining someone, we are trying to, to, to teach someone some principle that they don't yet know or master. And not just like academically, but let's say in their behavior. We are trying to motivate. We're trying to encourage. We're trying to edify. So we don't use this for the sake of destruction. We don't use it because we are personally offended. And this is the other thing when it comes to the use of authority. Authority should never be used to retaliate. Authority should never be used because I'm personally offended or angry towards someone. And that, you know, inside myself, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to show you who I am and what I can do to you, right? That should not be the motivation for using authority. Authority should be used to teach and to instruct and to edify the person, even if that means a consequence. Even if that means we're going to do something that is negative toward them in the sense that it's something that they are not going to like. But what is our motivation our motivation is to do it out of edification. Our motivation is, I want to teach you an important principle, and I feel that it is my duty, right, to teach this to you. This is why I do it. This is why I, I, I restrain myself. And when I do not restrain, when I'm actually going to give you some kind of consequence, I still do so out of love, not out of hatred, not out of anger, but um, out of a desire to teach. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, 
but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. What does that mean? Who's saying that? Yes, in Corinth, people in Corinth who are saying what about him? Yeah, so like I said earlier, right? His letters, his epistles that he writes to us, he's like speaking with such authority and speaking with such power and boldness and commanding us and rebuking us and doing this. But when he comes in person, he appears nothing like what we imagined him to be. He didn't, he doesn't have powerful stature. He's not, doesn't appear strong necessarily, right? Just as you might see people who um, have great authority in the church, um, but they're very humble. And actually the Lord Christ was like this. When people looked at him, did they see in him that this is the almighty God? They saw him as a meek man who allowed himself to be crucified. And even when they were mocking him. So again, he restrained himself. He didn't use the fullness of his power. If he had used the fullness of his power, then no one would have ever considered him to be weak, right? Because of what he did. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in words by letter when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present, right? He's, he's, he's defending himself. He's saying, those false teachers who are accusing me of, of being one way when I'm far away, and then being a different way when I am present. He's saying, what? I am the same person. What I am when I'm absent and writing to you by letters is the same person that I will be um, when I am present, right? They were trying to accuse him to take his place. They wanted him to be out of the picture. They wanted the people to go to these false teachers as being the sources of authority instead of St. Paul. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. Okay, so there's several things he says here. He says what? We will not dare to compare ourselves to those who commend themselves. Okay, why? Because they are using the wrong measure to determine who they are, to determine whether their behavior is right or not, what do they do? They measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves. Meaning, what is the standard that we are trying to live up to? It is the standard of man, right? It is the standard of other people. And so we say, what? If I compare myself with the people around me and I'm saying, you know what? I'm, I'm the same or maybe a little bit better than those people, then I'm content in myself saying, you know what? I'm living godly. And I'm, I'm a good person and I'm living in the right way because my standard of comparison are other people. But if I really compare myself with God's standard, then there will be nothing that I can boast about because who of us can live up to the standard of God, right? The more that we compare ourselves to the right standard, the more it will produce humility because it is in realizing how far we are from God's standard, that we realize that we are sinners. And when I realize that I'm a sinner, I turn to God for his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. And this is where the relationship with God becomes stronger. Because I see God as I need him. 
I see that I am in need of salvation, that he is my savior, because I compare myself truly with the standard of God. Sadly, we often forget this. We find ourselves acting like the world, doing the things that are acceptable in the world, simply because we will not be rebuked, right? You know, we, we will not be rebuked. If I am, and this is why people who want to live a certain way, they tend to have friends that also have a similar lifestyle to them. Because if I want to, like, let's say I, I want to do drugs, okay? People who, who take drugs often have friends that take drugs. Because if they were the only one that is taking drugs, then the rest of the people around them would tell them, well, you shouldn't take drugs. Like, drugs is harmful. You, you, should, you should stop. So they don't want to hear this. So instead, they surround themselves with other people who have a similar lifestyle, who do the same thing. So there's no judgment, there's no rebuke, there's, there's, there's nothing. So I don't feel convicted. I don't feel like I have to change. I feel very happy with the way that I am. And that's just the way that it is because I'm comparing myself with myself and with the other people that are kind of doing the same thing that I am, okay? But then he says what? What is the reason that St. Paul is the one who kind of, is the, is the apostle appointed to them. He's saying, because this is his calling, right? We will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. Meaning, St. Paul is saying, God has called me to serve you. You are the ones that I am called to serve. So I serve you, whether it be in, in, in joy or in pain, whether it's easy or it's hard, whether you respect me or you disrespect me, in whatever way I serve you because you are the ones that I have been called to serve, that God has called me to serve. So that is the reason he has such a zeal for them, right? He loves them with a godly love because he knows that God has appointed him to them. This is actually the way that God shows love to us. He places us under the care of others, one of the ways. So for instance, every person who has parents, Okay, um, the very first people that show us love and care in the world are our parents. And this is the love of God through them, or whether it be through friends or through teachers or through clergy or through, you know, S Sunday school teachers or whatever, whoever it is, all the people that God puts in my way to be like as a support and an encouragement to be in my life. It is like God is saying what? that they have some responsibility toward me. They have a responsibility to show love toward me. So St. Paul is saying, what? Well, this is my sphere. This is my sphere of influence that God has given me to show you love, as opposed to these false teachers, right? Because those false teachers were not called by God to serve them. Those false teachers, all they cared about was their own reputation, their own power, what it is that they got, the respect that they would receive. They were not there to serve. They were there to receive something from those people. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure that is in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. So he's saying what? We are the ones who came to you from the beginning, right? We were the first ones to preach the gospel to you. We were the ones who established the church in Corinth. We are the ones who are following up with you. 
God has called us to this ministry. So we are like, we are the ones responsible for you. We are the ones who are showing you love, not these other teachers, right? We are not trying to boast of another man's accomplishment, meaning we are not like waiting until, um, you know, someone else established the church in your area and was a father to you and helped you to grow and all these things. And then we came in and tried to like take his place. That's not, he's saying, we didn't do that. We were the ones who were there from the beginning. We are the ones who established the church here from the very beginning. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Right? This is the person who seeks glory from God alone. This is a person who is not parading his accomplishments or his abilities or anything about his, his reputation or anything at all. He's not seeking glory from anyone. And this really, truly, it's very hard to find people anymore that live like this. You know, it's very hard to find people who truly all they care about is the glory of God. It's like I'm invisible. I don't care how people treat me. You know, this is the agape love, right? Agape love is saying that I, I love completely, expecting nothing in return. Nothing in return. This is what God did for us, right? That I am, I'm, I'm seeking no glory for myself. I'm seeking no, um, like, uh, like reciprocation. My love is, is purely because I want to give. And I'm not expecting anything in return. And even when I receive nothing in return, I continue to love. Because St. Paul, he, he didn't receive a lot of positive feedback from the Corinthians, right? He, he received a lot of heartache from them, you know? And so even though that's the case, he continues to serve. Again, it's like, look at the love that parents have for their children. When their parents, when the children are disobedient, when they don't do what they're supposed to do, the parents don't just say, okay, that's it. I'm done with you. No, I mean, actually they persevere, right? Any good parent would persevere after years and decades, you know, of struggling with their kids. So this is the way that God is with us, that he continues to show us love even when we show him disobedience, even when we show him lack of faith, even when we reject him, he continues to persevere in his love, seeking after us. And so what is the glory then that we seek? We should be seeking only the glory from God, not the glory that comes from anyone that we have served, not the glory of our reputation, not the glory. He who glories, let him glory only in the Lord, that we are seeking only the glory of God and not our own glory in every way. So we do not commend ourselves, but we are praised that the Lord is the one who commends us. When God is the one who commends, when God is the one who kind of showers us with praise, this is what brings us joy, not any other person or any other thing. That brings us joy. Any questions about chapter 10 before we move on to chapter 11? Okay. Um, so he goes on here and he says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed you do bear with me. Okay. What folly is he talking about? Okay, the cross. Which whose cross? Yes, but he's speaking here 
specifically about something specific that he's been talking about and that he's going to talk about. Because he keeps talking about, do not glory, do not boast, boast only in the Lord, glory only in the Lord. It is not who commends himself, but the one whom the Lord commends, right? So what folly is he speaking about here? Okay, it could be seen as pride. He's about to do something that he's referring to as folly. So what has he been doing this whole time? He's been defending himself, right? Against his false teachers. And he just said how, you know, we shouldn't be boasting. We should give glory to God in everything. We should love without expecting anything in return. All those things. So what is he going to do now? He's going to kind of uh, do what he told everyone not to do, <laughs> in a sense. This is why he's calling it folly. He's saying, what I'm about to do is folly in the sense that this isn't what should be done. He, this, this, what I'm about to do is not an example that we should all do this. But let me explain to you the reason why I'm doing it. Again, the, the motivation that St. Paul had was not to draw attention to himself, was not to um, defend himself, but it was only to show that indeed he was chosen by God to serve them so that they would follow his instructions and they would be saved. So he is trying to prove to them that he is indeed the authentic apostle. And he's trying to prove to them the love that he has for them by showing the amount of sacrifice that he has committed for them. So it sounds from a human, from human ears, it sounds like boasting. You know, it's like if I come and I start talking about how, you know, I have to wake up so early for you guys and I have to make you guys food and I have to let me let me tell you all the things that I do for you. You know, like if a human being starts talking like that, typically they reach the point where they are just wanting a lot of praise um, and appreciation for what it is that they do. But this is not the motivation here of St. Paul. Okay. He's not doing this because he wants their appreciation or he wants their praise. He's doing it for their salvation. And he wants to prove to them that his lifestyle proves that it is supernatural that is, that, is, that is God is the one who chose him to be the apostle for them and that they should follow him and not be deceived by these other false teachers, okay, that are claiming that they are the true teachers. He says, what for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean when he says, I am jealous for you? Kind of like when a husband would be jealous for his wife. Okay, husband jealous for his wife. So how does that apply here? Who is he jealous of? Well, that's what he wants to happen, right? He wants them to know the Lord. Jealous from the false teachers. Jealous from the false teachers. Right? Actually, in the book of Hosea, right? Hosea is one of the minor prophets. God wants to communicate to the people how he feels uh, 
when they disobey him and when they go after false gods and idol worshiping. So he says, I am like a husband who is betrayed by his wife. And, and to, to, to make it so crystal clear for them, he asked Hosea the prophet to marry a woman who would betray him as an example so that everyone could see that this indeed was exactly what the people were doing with God. Right? So when God says that he is a jealous God, it means that he doesn't want us to go after other gods. He is jealous in the sense that he wants us to remain with him. Because And, and why is that? It is not because God somehow is edified because we are with him or that God somehow something is like we are adding something to him that he is missing whenever we are not with him. He is jealous because he cares about us. He wants us to be safe with him. He wants us to have salvation in him. And so whenever we go out after any other false God, then he is jealous. He's saying why? It's like it's like someone who's jealous that their wife is going and having an affair with someone else. That's jealousy, right? So here, this kind of jealousy that God speaks about and the kind of jealousy that St. Paul speaks about is a godly jealousy. It is not based on selfishness, right? But it's based on love. So he's saying, I am jealous for you, meaning my heart is like yearns for you whenever I see that you're going and, and, and listening to these false teachers who are leading you astray. I am jealous. I don't want you to do that. Right? Yes. Is it our, like, let's say, for example, that um, we have a friend um, that, you know, usually comes to church and, and suddenly that friend uh, decides to leave, you know, the Oriental Orthodox uh, Sisterhood of Churches and then decides to go to maybe like a Protestant church. And so, like, in that sense of, like, me wanting to bring, to bring them back, like, is it my place to say anything, I guess? Or like uh, in this in this aspect of like godly jealousy. Yes, it is a, it is a jealousy, right? Like we believe that the Orthodox Church is the is the true faith. That anyone who departs from it, we are we we want them to come back again for their own sake, not for our sake, for for their own sake. So in that sense, yes, it's exactly the same concept, right? It's a it's a godly jealousy, and it, so it's a jealousy out of love, right? The, the selfish jealousy is I want to obtain, I want to acquire something that someone else has, right? Because I want it. The godly jealousy is I want to, to give something to someone, something that is good to someone else. And because they have gone after something foreign, they do not benefit from the good thing that is in the church, that's in the faith. So I want to offer it to them. I want to bring, it back, bring them back again. So that's the kind of jealousy he's talking about. And then he says, what? For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What, is, what does that mean? Or does it mean I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ? Sorry, say it again. Someone who is the someone you're referring to? The people? Yeah. So people that's never followed something else or gone. Oh, because you're saying because they're a virgin. Yeah. Yeah. So so he's saying you you are the bride, right? You are the bride of Christ. 
So what is the role of St. Paul in this? If the, if the church is the bride, and obviously Christ is the bridegroom, so what is the role of St. Paul? It could be a best man. Actually, this is what St. John Chrysostom says. He says, the present time is that of the betrothal. The apostle takes upon himself the role of a matchmaker and puts the church in the position of a bride. So it's like the, the, the role of St. Paul is to, is to bring together the church with the, the, the bridegroom, the bride and the bridegroom together. This is all, this is the this is what the priesthood is about. This is the whole, this is why the priesthood exists. The priesthood, the job of the priest is a, is a, is a job of reconciliation between God and man. This is what the this is what the priests do. Right? Think about all of the functions of the priest. Right? The priest stands at the altar and he prays the sacrament so that the people can partake of communion with God. This is a reconciliation between God and man, the un, the uniting of God and man. The priest is the one who officiates all the sacraments, like the sacrament of baptism. Again, for what? The the, the uniting of God and man. The priest hears the confessions of the people. Why? For the uniting of God and man. So in every way, the role of the priesthood is to unite God and man, right? Is to bring them together. Here, as St. John Chrysostom calls it, the matchmaker, right? Who brings the man and the woman together, right? So this is what St. Paul is saying, that I may present you as a chaste virgin. It's like it's like St. Paul is like, if you want to think about it like from a, kind of an analogy, you know? It's like, you know how like before the wedding, the bride is like in a room and she's getting ready. And there's all these people that are like helping her to fix up her hair and to do this and this and this. So that when she enters into the wedding, she is like the most beautiful she can be, right? This is, is kind of like the role here that St. Paul is taking. He's like, I want to serve you. Why? Not because I want glory for myself. I want to serve you to make you the best that you can be. So that I can present you to the Lord in your best, you know, in your best condition, as a, as a chaste virgin, as a as a as a loving and obedient, you know, bride to the Lord, right? So this is how Saint Paul sees his role, and that's why he took it so seriously, because it's like God is 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 asking him for this. God is the one who sent him, and he said, "I want you to go and to prepare my bride for me." I want you to prepare her to be in the most beautiful way that she can be. And so St. Paul takes this as a serious um, responsibility. That's why he can't just sit back and let other people take his position. Not because he's fighting for the position, not because he wants the respect of the people or anything, but because he feels this burden of responsibility on him that God has appointed him for this role, right? And that, and that when he teaches the people, he is teaching according to the precepts of God and not to any other precepts. And he is doing it with like pure and genuine motives. <clears throat> but I fear. Did you have a question? Okay. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Right? So he's he's here making a comparison. He's saying. The you being deceived by these false teachers who are coming with this nice outward appearance, who are coming with these nice eloquent sermons, who are telling you exactly what you want to hear. When you are deceived by them, it is exactly like when Eve was deceived by the serpent. Okay, this means that the message of these teachers is an attractive message, 
It's an attractive message. It's a message that the people would rather follow and would rather hear. Okay? And this is very, very applicable to the Orthodox Church. Because if you look at all of the churches and you look at all of the faiths, to such a large extent, what we preach, it goes against the world. It goes against natural inclination. It goes against society. It goes against what just so many people have accepted and are doing. So when we stand up for our faith <clears throat> and we say, you know what? We preach fasting and we preach prayer and we preach uh, living chaste. You know, we preached uh, striving for holiness. We preach confessing your sins. You know, all of these things that we preach goes radically against what the world teaches. And if somebody is looking simply for what is the most comfortable or what is the easiest to do, they would not choose the Orthodox Church, right? Like the person who comes to the Orthodox Church comes because they want to take their spiritual life seriously, because this is more like, um, like a training, right? Like, like, like where you take seriously, like how you want to live. Because if I am simply content to live in the world the way that the world lives, it's a far, it's a far easier way to live by far it's a far like when christ came and he preached christianity he didn't preach something that was easy to do you know he said what well, count the cost he said if you want to be my disciple right count the costs what is it that you are going to leave behind if you truly want to be my disciple what is it that you're going to leave behind what is it that you're going to sacrifice what is it that you're going to give up and so unless someone is prepared to hear such a message unless someone is truly convinced that this is the road of salvation, then why would they want to follow it, right? So here, this is why fighting against false teachers is so difficult. Because the false teachers tell you what you want to hear. And the Antichrist will tell everyone what they want to hear, which is why it says that even the elect will be deceived, right? Even the elect, even those people who are believers, even those people who have been in the church will be deceived. And sadly, this is what's, what's happening, you know? You have many people who are even in the church who are deceived by the messages in the world to accept the morality of the world, to accept the way of the world, and while doing so, believe that it is actually morally superior in doing this, right? Morally superior than God. Replacing God from being the moral authority to having what? The government be the moral authority. To being 21st century Americans to be the moral authority right? Instead of God being the moral authority. Also, the message is deceitful, not only because of the content, but because of the way that it's delivered. Maybe preying on people's emotions, on their desires, maybe manipulative, not straightforward, uh, not giving you clear answers, right? Or, or, you know, telling you what you want to hear, but it's not the same thing that you hear all the time, okay? So any false system, one way that you can tell that it's a false system and that it's a man-made system, it is, is because it is filled with contradictions. So when you find a system that is full of contradictions, you know that it is a man-made system, right? Because God's system is the only system that doesn't have contradictions. But you have to study it to understand. Because many people from the outside, they will look at Christianity and they take verses out of context and say, hey, this verse is this and this verse is this. See how it looks as a contradiction. How do you explain? 
right? And they look at it so obviously, it's like, oh yeah, see, the Bible is full of contradictions. It's like, well, who said so? You have to you have to dig deeper to understand what these verses are actually saying. You can't just assume some superficial knowledge or understanding of it and then claim that it is full of contradictions, okay? The message of Christ is complete because he is the truth. He is the truth. So there is nothing that can come out of him but truth, which is why his system cannot have contradiction. It cannot have lie, and it cannot have deception. It is straightforward even if it offends, right? When the Lord was speaking about how the people had to eat his body and blood, right? He offended many people, and they all left him. And he didn't try to chase after them. He didn't try to go after them and say, you know, please come back again. You know, you misunderstood. No, he, he said it plainly. This is, in order to have life, you must eat my body and blood. Right? And it was a difficult teaching for people to understand. And only those who trusted and had faith later, it was, they realized that he wasn't talking about, like, nibbling on him. They were talking about, about the sacrament in the form that we could partake of right so so his message is pure and true um but oftentimes because it is true we don't want to hear the truth you know we don't want to listen to the truth and so it offends us but in order for the message to be true it is said not because we are trying to win followers not because we are trying to increase the number of people but simply because again just as saint paul's role was to present the Corinthians as a chaste virgin to Christ, so also this is the role of the church today. The role of the church is to present the people as chaste virgin to Christ, right? And so whether that's an easy process or a difficult process. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which, uh, which, you, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Okay? So he's warning them from this. He's saying, don't put up with it. This is why we, we put such emphasis on the truth and on the message. Because we cannot put up with a different gospel. There is only one gospel. There is only one truth. There is only one way of salvation. There is only one Savior. And so here, St. Paul is saying, you want to know who is the true and who is the false? Is what they are teaching matching the gospel that you received? When we first came and preached to you and we preached to you the gospel, are they preaching to you the same things or are they preaching to you something different? You know, this is the way that we know the truth. But sadly, oftentimes people in the church don't make the effort to know the truth, to understand the scripture, to understand the tradition of the church, to understand what we believe so that they cannot detect whenever something that is non-Orthodox begins to enter into the church, begins to enter into the minds of the people, because they, they don't know how to compare it to anything, you know? You know, for many, like, it's the first time. You know, for many, it's the first time. But it's better for it to be the first time than not at all, you know? So here he says what? If, you, if, if anyone comes to you preaching something different, um, uh, don't believe it. In Jude 1.3, it says, I have found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith was delivered once for all. And this is a very important concept because this kind of 
um, defines the foundation by which we believe. And this is important because maybe we take this for granted. Maybe we take for granted the idea that the faith was delivered once for all, meaning that the faith that was delivered by God to us, right, from the beginning was delivered and it never changed. And the fullness of the faith was delivered. That doesn't mean that we have the answer to every single question. Obviously, there's a lot of questions that we don't have the answer for. But the fullness of the faith that God intended for us to know as human beings was, was delivered and nothing was left out. Okay? Because it says once for all. The whole faith once for all. This is important because in churches like the Catholic Church, for instance, the Catholic Church, they believe in something called the development of doctrine. This development of doctrine idea is what is used to justify changes to the Catholic dogma over time, right? So for instance, we know that the Catholic Church was once part of the Orthodox Church. It was once part of the Eastern Orthodox, and once the whole church together was one, right? So all of the, the, the changes that have happened in the faith, the differences in faith between the Orthodox and the Catholic Church today, all came about after the split, okay? So how did that happen? For instance, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, right? The belief that St. Mary was born sinless, or the belief in the papal infallibility, that the Pope uh, is without flaw, right? These concepts, they came about much later. Actually, the Immaculate Conception came about in the 1900s, right? Very recently, relatively. Because this idea of the development of doctrine means that they believe that God reveals new truths that simply had not been expressed before. And as people discover these things, they become doctrines. They become things that we now in the church believe. So in the Orthodox Church, we don't have development of doctrine. We believe what it says here in Jude 1.3, that the faith was once for all delivered to the saints. So whatever the church believed in the first century, it's the same thing that we believe now. We don't believe that in the year 1500, God revealed something new that was hidden and secret from before. And that it had never been revealed before, and now suddenly it had been revealed. And because God revealed it now, we have to update things, or we have to think about things differently, or we have to, you know, realize that there's something that we didn't understand. Okay, that's not how in the Orthodox Church how we believe. This is why we go back to the original church, we go back to the first century church, we go back to the the, the early church fathers, and we say whatever they said still applies today, right? It still applies today. Because nothing can change, because the faith was delivered once and for all, right? So and this is what St. Paul is saying. He's saying, if what you hear is different than the original gospel that was preached to you, if the spirit that is being preached is different than the Holy Spirit that was preached to you, if the Jesus that they are preaching is different than the original Jesus that was preached to you, if there is some, anything different, then it's wrong. Anything, then it's wrong. So if we use such a measure to determine right and wrong, then if we really know our faith, then anything else that's foreign to that, we can reject it. We can say, no, this is, you know, it's one thing to understand, but before we even begin to understand, like, like let's say, you know, so obviously we live in a pluralistic society. We live in a society that has so many different other religions and faiths and beliefs and so on. So people are going to have a lot of questions People are going to have a lot of different belief systems different than us. So oftentimes what happens is people, like let's say we, you know, are talking to someone who is of another faith, and then they ask a, a question. 
like a critical question asking, why is it that we do this or why is it that we believe this? Maybe I personally don't know the answer, but that should not trouble me, you know? It should not trouble me that I don't know the answer. I believe that there is an answer and I believe that I can find out the answer. The fact that I don't know the answer in the moment, all that should do, it prompt me to go and find it. So now I can answer that person and say, okay, um, let me go get you the, the answer on that and then I get you the answer. Instead of it causing me to enter into some kind of doubt, you know, into thinking it's like, oh, this question this person asked, so it's a very hard question. What is our answer to that? I don't know, right? Instead, it's okay to not know and it's okay to find the answer, okay? Also, when it comes to this faith, if we really believe that the scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we believe that this is the word of God, and so we believe it is without flaw or error, okay? So either it's without error or it can have error. If it's without error, then we believe the whole thing. Whether we understand it or don't understand it, this is what we believe. If it is, has even a single error, that means it could not have come from God because God is without error by definition. So it's, you can't take part of it. That's what I'm trying to say. Is you either take the whole thing or you reject the whole thing. But you can't take parts of it. Because when you go back to the idea of taking parts of it, which parts will you take and which parts will you reject? Well, you will take the parts that are comfortable and you will reject the parts that are uncomfortable, right? That's what we do. And that's what like postmodern Christianity, essentially that's what postmodern Christianity does is I will take the things that feel good and I will leave the things that feel bad, right? But that's not Christianity. Christianity is not about making me feel good. Christianity is about the truth. What is true and how do I conform myself to that truth, okay? So in our church, the message comes from the source, not altered by human manipulation, right? That is true without bias, okay, from God. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Again, remember, he said he was going to be speaking folly, right? So he's speaking here this, this, this idea of folly, that now he is speaking about himself comparing to the other apostles. But again, why is he doing this? Is he trying to show that he's a better apostle than them? No. He is trying to show that he is indeed an apostle, that he is indeed chosen by God, just like all of the others. He is a genuine apostle. His words can be trusted because he is a steward of God, entrusted with the word of faith, just as the other apostles. Now remember, St. Paul was the only apostle who did not live with Christ, right? The other apostles, the 12 disciples and the 72 apostles, they all lived with Christ. They all learned at the feet of Christ. They all interacted with Christ while he was alive. St. Paul did not. St. Paul was not chosen an apostle while the Lord was alive in his incarnation on earth. Okay, He was chosen after. So this is why also he had more work to do to prove that he is indeed a genuine apostle like all the others. Okay, Because nobody ever remembered seeing St. Paul with Christ at any time. Actually, at that time, St. Paul was a Pharisee, was a persecutor of Christians. So it's saying like you person who you Pharisee who have been persecuting Christians and now suddenly you're saying that you're an apostle and that you are teaching the, the way of God, right? 
So he, he is always having to defend himself to show that he is genuinely an apostle. Um, so then he goes on and says what? Even though I am untrained in speech, going back to the idea of don't judge according to outward appearances. St. Paul, let's say he doesn't have the best uh, speech, the best eloquence compared to the other false teachers that he's comparing himself with, right? But he's saying that is not, the, that is not what you should be judging by. That, that's not what you should be judging by. Like, has anyone ever heard the voice of Pope Krolos? Pope Krolos VI? You ever heard his voice? His, his voice, like when he would pray liturgies, his voice was very, uh, if God forgive me, but his voice was very hard to listen to. He didn't have a nice melodic voice. He, di he didn't have like a voice where you just, you know, I just want to turn on the liturgy of such and such priests or whatever and listen to it. It was a very, like that wasn't the, the gift that God gave him was the singing. Okay. But he didn't have to have that gift of singing because what he had was far, far, far greater than the singing. Right. And maybe even as he is praying the liturgy, that from the outward appearance, the sound of the, the sound of it was not like the most beautiful sound, but the genuineness by which he prayed it, because he prayed a liturgy literally every single day, literally every single day, to the point where people were criticizing him because he was praying too many liturgies and not doing enough service. Right. That's the people were, were telling him that. But he refused to stop. And, he, and it was through this work of the Spirit that he actually revived the Coptic Church. He revived the Coptic Church because of his spirituality, because he was a model of spirituality for so many people and young people who then began to love doing midnight praises. You know, like 100 years ago, nobody did midnight praises. Like midnight praises was not a thing that, that you would think to do. It is because of him that he, because he, he prayed midnight praises every single day, that it's like revived and even made people aware of the existence of midnight, midnight praises, right? So from the outside, you can look at something and it looks one way, but in reality, it is something totally different. So here, just like St. Paul is saying, you know what, maybe I am untrained in speech. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not advanced in rhetoric. I'm not advanced in the way that I'm talking, maybe comparing myself to these other people who are philosophers and people who have been trained in rhetoric and all these things, but don't judge according to that. You know, that's not the thing you need to be judging by. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? <clears throat> okay, what is he, what is he talking about with the free of charge? So St. Paul you guys know what his occupation was, other than apostle? He did what, sorry? Yes, he made tents. And why did he do that? For his livelihood. Because why? He didn't want to take money from the church. Now, <clears throat> there were some churches that he did receive money from, and he's going to explain that. But here, when he's speaking to the Corinthians, he felt that toward them, he didn't want to take any money because they had already criticized him so much. He didn't want um, anyone to falsely believe that he was somehow reaping financial benefits from his service and taking money from the church. So he said, what? I'm not going to take any money from the church. I'm going to supply my own needs. Okay. However, there were other apostles who were, you know, living off of the donations from the church, which there's nothing wrong with that. So this act that St. Paul did 
as kind of like an act of humility and saying that even though I have every right to live from the, the fruit of the ministry, but I do not do that so as not to be a stumbling block for anyone so that everyone, no one believes that I'm somehow taking, like, like I'm getting, you know, I'm enriching myself from the service. So what then did they do? Okay. Um, people then accused him of the opposite. Because, you know, you can't ever please anybody, right? Like, that's the rule. You can't please anyone. So the people then who saw him working, making tents, they accused him and saying that you are, instead of being fully dedicated to the service, you are actually have a side job over here, and you're doing that work, right? So the thing that he was doing out of his humility and his love for the church then became the, the, the cause of more criticism. You know, when you want to criticize someone, you will find something to criticize. So he was being accused of this. So he, he is responding here, and he says, did I commit sin in humbling myself because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? Like, you're accusing me now of, like, of being worldly or, or, or not being fully dedicated to the, my service, to, to not caring enough about the Corinthians that, you know, I have to work on the side. Like, that's, not, that's, uh, that's now what they're accusing him of, okay? So he's defending that. And he's saying, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. So he's saying, even though for you, I did not um, take any money, but there are other churches that also support me and support my ministry. They're, you know, they were more friendly to him than, than the Corinthian church. So he's saying, I robbed them in the sense that I'm taking the donations that they are giving for me to live, and I am using it to minister to you, Right. So, so again, he's, he's having to defend. He's having to defend everything that he's doing. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, so I will keep myself. Okay? So um, it's, uh, it's possible that um, the, the church he's speaking about, when he's saying, I robbed other churches, it's possible that he's speaking about the Philippians, because if you read in Philippians chapter 4, it says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So it's possible that kind of like the church in Philippi was very generous and providing to St. Paul for his ministry, and he was taking that money and he was using it even for um, the serving of the other churches. This says also something about the humility and the love of the Philippians, right? Um, you know, today, if you say, you know what, we're going to take the donations from one church, and we're going to give it to help another church. You know, there will be like an uproar, you know, and the people will be like, this is our donations that we are saving for our church and to build and to do. And, and you know, why, why are you giving this to another church, right? But that's not the spirit, like the church, actually, this is why, you know, we're kind of shouldn't be referring to each of our church buildings as churches, right? They're called parishes, right? And the reason we call them parishes is because there's only one church and we are all members of the one church. And these are just different areas, different places of worship, right? That we worship. So there should be no distinction in our mind between this congregation and that congregation and that congregation. And, and that's one thing that I feel is very important 
because when you start developing like um, divisions between the churches, right, it, it causes a lot of problems, and it and it goes against the very nature of what the church is supposed to be, that we are the body of Christ, we are the bride of Christ, we are the one body, right? And we can't be the one body when I care so much about, you know, you have this and you have this and you have this and I have this, you know? The churches are here to serve everyone, um, and, and we shouldn't be so focused on these differences. As the truth of Christ... As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows, right? Some people were arguing that because he did not accept the money from the Corinthians, that this was actually a reflection of a lack of love. So you had, again, some people accused him of working is wrong. Some people said, no, you're taking the money from the church is wrong. No matter what he did, it was wrong, okay? Again, he's denying this. Right, and he's saying no. The fact that I didn't take the money um, is, is 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 has nothing. It's no reflection at all on whether I, I love you or not, and so on. So, again, it's important to put in our minds this idea of we do the the right thing for the right reason, and not so much caring about what other people say, because this the false teachers are going to be more concerned with the opinions of everybody. Right? Whereas the true teachers are going to care about the truth. Yes, they're going to do things for pastoral reasons and caring about the needs of the people and so on. But there are some cases where you can't please everyone. You know, my grandfather told me this funny story to explain this concept to me when I was a kid. I don't know if you guys had heard this story before. He said there was this, uh, this uh, boy and his grandfather and a donkey. And they, all three of them, were traveling. Okay, And so the boy was sitting on the donkey the grandfather was walking, and they entered into this town. And so people from the town, they were like telling um, the boy, it's like, your grandfather is old and feeble, elderly man. How can you let him walk where you are comfortable on the donkey? You know, so they're like, oh, okay. So the way we're doing it is wrong. So they switched. So the grandfather now sat on the donkey, and the boy's walking. And so they kept traveling, and they went to another town, right? And in this town... They saw the grandfather on the donkey, and they saw the boy was walking, right? And they said, well, how can you, you know, let your, your, your grandson be walking while you are comfortable on the donkey? He is so young. So they thought about it, and they're like, okay, well, we'll both ride the donkey, right? So they both got on the donkey. Then they went to the next town, and the people there were like, poor donkey. You got all these people sitting on the donkey. The donkey can't carry all of this burden. You know, there's too many people, it's too heavy for the donkey. And they chastised them for the donkey. So then they said, okay, well, the only other option is that neither of us are going to ride the donkey. We're just going to walk. So all of them started walking. No one rode the donkey. Then they went to another town. And this town, like, you have a perfectly good donkey. Why doesn't somebody ride the donkey? So finally, they decided that they were going to carry the donkey on their back. Right? So that was the conclusion of that story. So the idea is that Right, you can't please everyone, and here St. Paul, even though he had great intentions, um, also no matter what he did, there were people that didn't accept it. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the in the things of which they boast. 
For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Okay? So he's saying, I'm going to continue to do what I do. Right? He didn't, he didn't change what he was doing. He thought to himself, what is it that I should do that's right and appropriate? And this is what I did. Right? He, he, he didn't try to, like, go between this group and this group. It's like, oh, okay, I got to change this and I change back like the people with the donkey. Right? He, he said, no, I have a good principle. And I'm, I will live according to this principle. And if people question me about it, I will tell them why I'm doing what I'm doing. But I'm not going to keep trying to change here and here and here um, to, to kind of uh, cater to the needs of the people. Okay. And then he goes on and says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. What is it that the false teachers are doing? The false teachers are like chameleons, you know. They are just going to change themselves into whatever is necessary to receive honor, to receive, you know, to, for their ministry to work because all they don't care about the truth. They just care about acceptance. They just care about being accepted and being praised. So they, they are easily going to transform themselves into whatever it is that the people need them to be in order for them to be successful in what they're doing. Okay. Um, this is a good stopping point because we are at the end. Any comments or questions before we conclude? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O God, for this day. We ask, we ask you for your blessing in everything that we do, and, you, and we ask you to be more like St. Paul, and to having a love for your people and a love for service as he had. Teach us, O God, how not to judge based on the outward appearance 